compassion comes up a few times in the questions you've placed here. Karuna. So karuna is a quality which sensitizes to the vulnerability of beings. Sensitizes to the vulnerability of beings. That people, beings, not just humans, but creatures get damaged for pain, sickness, death. And so it's with metta, you're more attuning to the lovability of beings. You wish to kind of bring you know, happiness to them. With Karuna, you're recognizing the pain of beings and the wish to ameliorate or remove that, or, or that, that inclination. Of course, that's, that's what natural quality of heart difficulty is doing it, of course, which is a slightly different thing. I mean, how do you relieve other people's pain? Um, well, you can do things like get them in a car and go to Boston, that helps. Some extent, these are kind of measures that we can undertake, and because it's one finds it extremely agreeable to do that, you know, when you can, it's lovely to feel you can fulfil this this heart quality, and uh, you know, that's the nature of all these Brahma Viharas. They're just lovely places to live. Um, Whenever you get a chance to experience that, uh, that in itself is just beautiful because your heart becomes very wide and tender and sensitive, and that, that's, uh, that's an agreeable experience. You know? Not because the heart is expressing itself, the heart is an agreeable experience. <laughs> when it's clear from confusion, it is. You know? And so these, these are abiding places where it's, it's relational. You know? relational experience and then there's a great joy or something when we're able to manifest compassion and and act upon it it's not always the case we can you can experience other people suffering I can't do anything about it and you get frustrated because you know energies in the heart you can definitely fulfill them once it moves out into the realm of sense consciousness and you know separate beings, the chances of fulfilling these heart qualities in that realm are not so great. Because <laughs> it's not the heart's realm. This is the realm of the senses. So you, you can, maybe, but you can't always guarantee it. You can't always guarantee experiencing the quality. The actions that you can undertake from that are of limitations as is part of our I'm sure our collective sadness you know we see so much suffering, misery, pain damage in the world you know you feel a bit powerless sometimes with it all anyway the questions but you don't, don't want to let it because you can't fulfill it doesn't mean you can't experience the quality of that. Yeah. Mm. And so, you know, it's that sense of being touched and having this 
beautiful open heart. It's just the natural uh, fulfillment to a degree. I mean, if you didn't have it, just imagine what that would be like. You know, how, how miserable, how closed, how grim it would be if you couldn't experience that. You know, so compassion doesn't mean we can make things, everything better, but without it, we'd really be in a mess. And that's the same thing when people lose that, 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 that sensitivity, that concern, that, that uh, empathy. You know, they're, they're, half, they're only half human. Anyway, the questions, one is about the connection, how does equanimity support compassion? Compassion towards loved ones, my people, seems rather limited. My heart often aches with their suffering, but deep clinging and attachment are clearly present. By contrast, the seemingly more Pure compassion arises towards people I don't know very well. It seems like the neutrality of equanimity is directing chitta towards a more balanced, appropriate response. What's up with this? <laughs> How do we work with the deep attachment towards those in our quote-unquote inner circle? Yeah, it's true that... Um, you know, the, the purity of one's responses does get clouded um, with familiarity. Um, there's so many other you know, perceptions and relational energies occurring, some of them not very clear or, or, or fully expressed, that tend to clog the heart. You know, we can feel, well, uh, can I really, she's like this, it's a bit annoying, but, yeah, well, she, she'd always been like this, you know, and she's always, really, i tried for the last 15 years and she doesn't change a bit. Getting, <laughs> you know, my compassion's getting worn out on this one. <laughs> well, A friend of mine, he, when he was living, his father had um, cancer, ter- terminal cancer, or something, I think it was cancer. And when he was really having a bad time with it, then my friend would feel his, oh, my poor old dad, my dad. Oh, his heart was, you know, open with compassion. And whenever his father recovered a bit, was kind of clumping around doing the things he did, kicking things over and swearing and making a mess. And, my friend was saying, oh, silly old fool. <laughs> Compassion would drop. <laughs> so it, it, it does get tainted. <laughs> because we, we kind of, uh, you know, with, with other people, well, you, well, that you can configure people, you have perceptions and memories and impressions of them. That becomes that, that all those memories and impressions 
that become you know, my father, my my son, my whatever partner, cousin, so forth. You get so many impressions of them, and then they're irritating pieces of behaviour, kind of frustrate you, and their inability to to really get what you're talking about is disappointing, and so forth. So you get a lot of mingled responses because there's so so many multiple relational experiences happening, frustration, uh, uncertainty, how they relate to you, you know, treat you like an idiot or something, or don't listen to you, or always expecting something of you. So all these relational energies, the heart is picking up, and it's not so easy to, to just get back to that simple purity which you have with a relatively unknown person, and even with a dog, which is very easy to have, kindness and compassion towards dogs and whatever they do yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of why we have them because they do allow us to, to, to experience those qualities yeah. human beings we're always kind of measuring them and they relate to us in quite tangled and, and multifaceted ways so we lose that that, that simplicity so sometimes with people you know, you, you, you know, you've got to get almost beneath your knowledge of them. Or, you know, like a friend is someone who knows you very well but still likes you. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, what, what do we consider a being, you know, a person? And there's various behaviours and karma, karmic accumulations and levels of ignorance and levels of, you know, positive and negative, it's a very mingled thing. And though, so you want to get beneath those, just there's a, there's a being in there affected by ageing, sickness, death, pain, suffering, confusion. So you've got to kind of, kind of get transpersonal, you know, to something more fundamental, mm. and, and then it's much easier to to experience that. When you get to the fundamental quality of the being, then you can then okay, now I've got the channel open, and let's see working with their irritating habits and the way they don't actually listen to me when I'm being compassionate to them. <laughs> okay, and then the equanimity is really helpful then, which means equanimity doesn't ask for any results. It says this is an un- this is an endless project. There's no end. There's no final conclusion. There's no that's it. We've sorted it out. Everything's fine now. We're all totally clear, and everything's great. No, it doesn't bother with those expectations or those aims. It's just present, sensitive to, up, down, happy, sad, confused, clear, you know, cranky, wonderful, okay, okay. (laughs) So it's a very deep and wide uh, span of the heart. The serenity is just be present with, not to switch off. To be present with beings. 
and to not switch off the sensitivity. These four qualities, metta, karuna, mudita, peka, they are they arise from a base something more primary, primary sympathy. I call it primary sympathy or empathy. And the Pali word for this is anukampa. Anukampa means something like shivering in the presence of or resonating with. And this is the quality the Buddha refers to as that which motivates him to teach. He says, I teach out of anukampa. In his initial arising from Nibbana, then this kind of Brahma Sahampati, which you could say a vision of a vision of compassion or a vision of the, the universe, you know, spiritual vision, says, teach the Dhamma out of Anukampa. Pray, teach the Dhamma. There are those with little dust in their eyes. Teach the Anu out of Anukampa. Teach the Dhamma, which means you you get it, you resonate with it. You know, yeah. It's a very primary state, which is, Buddha is refers to this in himself, more or less as a steady state. He doesn't refer to himself very much in terms of the Brahma Vihara, mm. mostly Anukampa. Mm. Yes. So the Brahma Vihara are more kind of evolved heart activities, heart forms that arise from a very fundamental sympathetic, empathetic relationship to living beings. You sense it all, you tune in, you, you resonate with it all. And then the suffering, the, that aspect brings up that wish to be present with the suffering of others. Actually, not necessarily to change it, but to be present with it. That's fun. That we can do. To not shy away from it, and to not get rattled or agitated by it, or cave in with sorrow and grief. Just to be present with the suffering of others and feel it. Now, whether you can act, what you can do, requires wisdom, not just compassion. It requires wisdom and skill to see, well, this is something I can do. Don't see an opening there. We don't see an opening there, then we maintain equanimity. If an opening arises, I'll be in there. I don't see it. I don't know what I can do here. But I maintain that that anukampa and I'm supporting the heart with the quality of equanimity, not asking for results. Is there such a thing as displaced compassion? Either kind of snare or entanglement? enough to cause another incarnation. Well, I, I, I suppose if we look at this quite clearly, we can see most people I imagine would, would talk about compassion as a principle, 
to act compassionately. Uh, but Buddha mostly refers to it as a heart quality, uh, which I would say is an energy to it. It shapes the heart in a particular way. Uh, and so if you meditate upon this quality, then you deepen into it, arrives, your mind opens to the level of the realm of infinite space. So it becomes no boundaries, space with no boundaries. So he's talking really about this intimate heart experience and how that can, there's an energy that comes with that, heart, heart energy comes with that. Now when we get uh, confused or deluded, I would imagine, is when we adopt compassion as a principle, I should be compassionate. Uh, I need to be more compassionate towards other beings. You get irritated and you oh dear, I should be more compassionate. Then we're looking at a principle, which is not a bad principle, but we get confused because we're not necessarily really experiencing the quality of it. The heart quality of experience it's like kind of like a moral obligation. Then you get get a bit confused and tangled up with it. Now these qualities of Brahmavihara do lead to a to a, a further incarnation, or not incarnation, but a further level of becoming, which is the Brahma Loka. That's why they're called the Brahmavihara. Um, I wouldn't sniff at it, it's not a bad place to hang out. By all means, <laughs> they're very agreeable, but that's where, that's where it goes. Um, like samadhi does as well. But if there's wisdom, then that quality is seen as a quality, a heart quality arising, rather than identified with or grasped at as being either a person or a fixed state. So then it doesn't lead to that. One experiences it, but is not clung to by it. Mostly, I think, the confusions that can occur with terms like compassion and love is first obligation. You should be more loving and compassionate. That one we get stuck in. Um, you know, or I uh, well, I whatever I've got to kind of help everybody else, no matter how much it costs me. So you get uh, compassion fatigue. If you're working in caring professions, it becomes an obligation. The energy actually isn't there at that particular time, or it's there but it's not able to act. You just don't have the capacity to to bring it into action, and you feel guilty because you should. Well, it doesn't work like that. You can feel compassion but not be able to do much. And sometimes you're in a situation where it just isn't there. You know, you, you, your heart is, is too occluded or struggling to, to, um, to really get to that, that quality up and running. And then one needs to get a sense of turning compassion towards one's own experience towards one's own heart which may be struggling and notice that and then when we notice that the thing is once you wherever you notice a valid 
reachable perception of the vulnerability and compassion starts to happen and the, the, the vulnerability may be very right here in yourself the one you can actually reach right now right now you just can't get to the other person but you can experience your own sense of confusion and stress over your limitations and start there once you start there it's possible that quality will arise and develop and then maybe you can reach out and you can extend so you've got to get the real thing and, and encourage it to extend to what's within your range and of course you know, a range can be rather limited you know to difficult um, limited by what, what really we can feel touched by the more you develop the heart the more strong it becomes the more unshakable it becomes then the greater the capacity for its it to, to, to access and manifest this particular quality so we notice this in you know people who develop themselves spiritually have a big capacity for it they don't get annoyed by angry people or stupid people they feel compassion for them even they've been attacked they feel compassion for the person who's attacking them yeah. And that you can really recognise this. I mean one of our senior monks and you know, somebody's giving him a hard time and he's going, This person's really got a messed up head, you know. <laughs> I'm feeling, feeling compassion for the person who's attacking him. And he said, Well the thing is, you see, uh, if somebody attacks you, it's much better than if you attack them, because if you attack them, you get the bad karma. If they attack you, they've got the bad karma, so you feel sorry for them. <laughs> that's, that's a developed mind. person talks about walking meditation, just walking mindfully in the woods. The mind holds on to the breath as the home base, and even though it quickly moves through the senses, touching the earth, holding sticks, freshness of the air, Breath is always waiting, available. The mind wants to return to it. Breathing is the regulator. So the home, it is the home base of the living being. Obviously, it doesn't happen, you're dead. But it also is it's a regulator of one's normality. It's the emotional regulator. It's the body energy regulator. So it is, it's your thing to, to return to because that's where your sanity is you can regain your sanity your balance when you've lost it so it's it's good that your chitta your attention knows where to go and keeps reminding us don't lose yourself in other phenomena person asking about sila and dana as inner processes the person is aware of external process or behaviour, the actions, what they do towards others, but they recognise they tend to give from a place of obligation and duty. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's commendable, but 
What I get from that is really that quality is not happening in reality. You know, so it's like you could be compulsively compassionate as a principle, but you're not really feeling it. Similarly, you can be generous as a sense of this is what I'm supposed to be or do, but you're not really feeling this richness of heart that outreaches. That's the problem with externals. Huge problem with external realities. We go through the forms, social customs. We say polite words, but you know, uh, it's just kind of empty, really. Uh, and they become social obligations. Make sure you send everybody a Christmas card or something like that. Otherwise, you feel shameful, guilty. You haven't sent. Christmas card. So the externals have to be filled with the internal qualities. The internal quality of, of, of dana is uh, a sense of fullness. There's both a sense of fullness and both of these are so primary to, to Buddhist cultivation. They were considered to be the primary openers for those who are interested in the Dhamma. The Buddha talked about them as the as the graduated path, Dana Sila. Because most people can get to it and they know it makes them feel good. And it establishes a sense of mutuality. Like Dana means there's somebody who can receive this. You get that. It's not somebody I've got to give to which is just a name I'm supposed to give to this charity or something, but there's someone who can receive this and, and benefit from it. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Somebody can receive this and benefit from it. Right. See, so you, you get that, that realisation. Yeah. So once you get that realisation, there's no have to. The dharma energy just starts to move. If, if, of course, if the heart has this certain degree of, of fulfilment in it. It's the nature of heart. It does that. You know, these Brahmaviharas, you don't have to do them. It's like, why doesn't, why don't you, why don't we? What's wrong? What's happening? The heart's closed, the heart's frightened, the heart's somewhere else, we're not really in it, we're doing things out of social courtesy, but the heart's not really in it, the heart's somewhere else. So the the most easy um, way to, um, you know, get the heart to here, in this existence, is to recognise there is another being. Yeah. There's another subjective being with an inner quality. It's not just a statue or a name. There's an inner being there. Yeah. And so that, just like here, 
and then that connection is established right? the heart channel is opened why it's not opened is because I guess a lot of the time we see these shapes moving around with names and hair and things and people don't really get it that there's somebody in there there's another being there's a heart in there they think oh it's you know nationality or gender or something like that homeless person or you know this that and the other so we get these names and definitions that kind of obscure the, the nakedness of there is a being a sentient being there with all that quality of feeling and chitta happening for them and so whenever that realisation occurs then your own chitta suddenly oh because of you my heart is opened you know because I sense your sentiency something in me suddenly wakes up right? and one of that waking up moment one of the first things that can occur is, well, how do I, you know, how do we connect? How do we connect? Well, what do we connect? Connect, that's, we make some gift. The gift could be a smile, could be a gesture, it could be, can I help you? It could be, oh, would you like one of these? Or anything. It's that, that's what happens. You connect. Without it, without it, we don't get the heart sense, or we don't get it without it. We, we're not sensing that. We're defining a person, I like them, or she's this, or he's one of those, or whatever. You know, we get the naming process rather than the heart-to-heart process. And then the, the quality of generosity is, doesn't feel that same open channel. You know, to get that. Because it's only when you sense there's a heart there that the heart here opens up and, and experiences the possibility of mutuality. And that's that's a lovely experience. So the generosity is the easiest way of experiencing that. Now, when we have civilizations and cultures that believe in owning things, that we own something which is a complete fantasy, fabrication, then some of that Ghana quality is limited because suddenly we separate. I own this. You don't own it. This is mine. That's not your. That's not yours. So, you know, that, that ownership of things kind of diminishes the, the potential for because we're separated. I own it. You don't. Right. That makes us separate. That's heart to heart connection is no longer being acknowledged. So then, of course, the more people own and hold to that you know the, the dana capacity 
can severely dwindle. And when, you know, not saying it always does, you get philanthropists who are amazingly generous, but, uh, you know, there's a lot more giving that we could do beyond money if we really recognize heart-to-heart connections with humans and other creatures. We would not see them as things we exploit or make use of or dismiss or judge. We wouldn't see them that light. That's a different set of filters. <laughs> and what does it do to one's own heart if we're always using those filters? It gets very nervy in there. And, and, and agitated and comparing and not trusting and so forth. It gets very agitated. So we live in that kind of world because of this ownership thing that's taken over. So more we own, the more anxious and agitated and defensive and paranoid our culture gets. And the more grasping and more policed to make sure I keep hold of mine that nobody owns anything (laughs) you don't even own a breath so there's this kind of delusion and the results of it which we can see rampant in our human history Sila, same thing, really Sila, ethical sensitivity respect don't exploit. Don't exploit. Don't dominate. Respect. So the heart, when it sense that gives dignity to other other beings. And if you, you know, if you respect and you know see other people as people, you have some give them dignity. You get dignified too. You know, it brings back your sense of straightforwardness and uprightness. If we see others as that way, it does it to us. So, you know, we, this way we actually support, or the heart supports the beautiful in ourselves and others. If you disrespect someone, what kind of heart does that feel like? Yeah. You know, it's not noble and upright, is it? When that occurs, Now we can certainly say that people do foolish things and destructive things, and that's true. That makes it more complex. More complex to to one gets angry, one gets upset, one gets frustrated, one feels extremely oppressed by these people doing wicked, destructive things. True. But me, me acting in such a way isn't going to do, do me any good. You know? So, you know, we think, I'm not letting other people generate qualities that will make my mind brutal, savage, disrespectful, you know, paranoid and nasty. <laughs> I, you know, I want to keep it here. 
and that recognize that beautiful quality. And so then these become treasures because they give you sila gives you gives you strength. Gives you strength. And uh, dana gives you happiness. And then last is renunciation sets you free. Just let it go. Don't let anything. Feel free. When you let other things be free, you're free. So this is a holistic uh, experience, and that's part of the, you know, <laughs> the the process of dharma, the, the transformation from this kind of me, you, self, other, I am this, I could be that experience is fragmented into the holistic, which says me, you, are phenomena arising in the same field. You know, there's perceptions of me and you, those arise in the same field. Are those perceptions of you and me and them, are they tainted with ill will? Are they tainted with miserliness or or comparisons? Are they stained with a lack of sensitivity? We're all going to suffer from that because we all, those perceptions all arise in the same place. So the sense of me as a separate entity is a really confusing experience. It doesn't add up. It does, it's totally unsatisfiable because it's not. It's not a truth. All the me qualities arise within a field of awareness, sensitivity. Yeah. And the qualities I call you also arise in that same way, and that's happening wherever we enter consciousness. Consciousness divides things. So now, okay, that's that's the confusion of it. You look at the underlying theme, the tonality, am I seeing you with a mind, with a heart that's tuned in, with respect, kindness, generosity, that quality, is that energy running? If it's not, we're both in trouble. You know, I start feeling uncomfortable, you're going to feel uncomfortable. So this is tuning in for one's own welfare to these these hard qualities. And all obligations, they're just, you know, that's when you you kind of transfer them to some social duty. If you find there's been obligation, then what is it, what is the obligation sense? There's weight, there's pressure there. How does that feel? Weight, pressure. Yeah. If you're operating with weight and pressure, an obligation, that's what you will transmit to others. It won't be the real thing. It'll be stained with that quality. A dana always free, otherwise it's not dana. It's it's stained. So the person asking about the role of karma into into play right view and right intention. <clears throat> How do we know when karma may be interfering with embodiment? And how do we work with that? 
Well, karma is the uh, process of intentional action, action which is you can feel the energy rising up and moving out. So intention doesn't mean necessarily deliberately premeditated. It means there's definitely that sense of the energy is rising up to an, to an impulse, to a volition. And karma is when you're aware of that, you know that. You know it. Uh-huh. And then so the, the result is the, the you that knows it experiences the results of that. <coughs> and this can be for good, good karma, bad karma. And the nature of karma, good or bad, is its nature is to generate the person who receives it. Karma generates the person, the person doesn't generate karma. Karma generates the person. There's the experience of someone who has an intention and has the results of that. They feel pleased, they feel happy, they feel unhappy, they feel whatever they're feeling. They get the results of that. And that, that, then that, that, that sense of the personalizing that occurs means that the qualities of those intentions and energies have actually settled into the field of the citta. They become part of this personal layer that the citta is embedded in, for good or for bad. Mostly it's mingled, some good, some bad. This is called vipaka, or resultant karma, or old karma. And so that, that accumulates. And this gives rise to the sense of a person. That pattern, then, that is what, that's what gets born again. That pattern, that program, that blueprint, that's what gets born again. So that's how that all takes birth, further birth. This is the Buddha's insight in his night of awakening. One of his insights. Yeah. So, so it all, uh, yeah. So that that's that's the result. Now, to interfere with embodiment, it doesn't really interfere with it. It it, uh, it fleshes it out. It gives it some personal characteristics. You know, the results of it uh, land or are registered on a, on a somatic level, as well as a jitter level. So. Um, you know, what does this mean? I mean, it means that, uh, you know, if there's heavy karma, obvious, more obvious, heavy karma gives rise to strong, strong acquisitions, strong impressions. So one acts in a violent way, we've got a violent energy that becomes established as a program. Therefore, we tend towards violence. So heart, so it's a quality of heart. Violence also affects the body, you know, as we can see when people get angry, the body flares up. Um, so these energies then get into uh, bodily processes and uh, have their effects. And by and large, these uh, negative energies are quite corrosive to the body's sensitivity. You know, I mean, uh, new people. Friends of mine who lived in New Zealand, which is a big farming country, and they say people who work in abattoirs, killing 
hundreds of cattle a day. They just they become extremely affect you know like formed by it, like dull, heavy, have to drink a lot. Bodies get, their bodies are actually made more animal like. They become like dead meat. It's a strange, eerie result. Just the amount of killing uh, of animals makes their bodies get heavy, dull, because uh, they can't retain the sensitivities. Uh, that they can't retain sensitivity and compassion, and the body's energies can't open out if you're constantly killing creatures. They close down. So that actually affects the body, the hormones, the chemicals, and even the the physiology. It all begins to pay in. So, so it, in fact, karma doesn't. So it doesn't interfere with it. It certainly gives it some some shape. Uh, anxiety. You keep operating anxious way. That affects your nervous system. You get results like that. Uh, and so we see in this our uh, day and age, many people, just because of the lifestyles, high pressure lifestyles, high pressure stress, their nervous system starts to malfunction. We need medication to keep ourselves steady or to get to sleep at night because basically the karma of being hooked up to a high speed pressurized lifestyle, it has effects on the body. What can a, it does, but the one of the things that the system does at a certain point when stress levels get too high, basically just shuts off. So people get disembodied. Like, you know, they don't really even sense their bodies fully, and this also happens. You know, at certain levels of stress and and uh, pressure and, and contamination. The, the chitta just basically shuts off the body altogether. I'm out of here. Trauma again, you go out. Uh, it's just that you can't you can't bear to, the chitta can't bear to be in that. So it just basically quits, runs out. But this isn't just because of karma. This isn't the Buddha makes it clear that it's, it's either through one's own actions or through the actions of others, these unwholesome tendencies get established. So, you know, if we're, we're traumatised, for example, it's not because you're a bad person, but you got unlucky, but you, unfortunately the results still get embodied. How to work with it? Well, basically... <laughs> That's kind of what we're doing, really. Oh, the Buddha called it his path. He called this is the karma and the end of karma. You can summarize what I'm teaching as karma and the end of karma. Karma is the accumulation. We've all got these patterns, these patterns and programs. Uh huh. Now I'm going to give you actions to do that will help to clear those patterns and programs, so you get to the end of this, being stuck in this continual you know, fixated condition. Uh, so all of all Dhamma practices, if they're valid, are either generating skillful karma, purifying the heart so it can generate skillful karma. 
sometimes it's just so shut down it doesn't even know what good is anymore or what love is anymore so purifying to the point when it can generate skillful karma and then the skillful karma of inquiry and investigation and calming and clarifying this is all skillful mental actions subtle actions and and refraining from other actions so that this is cleared last one for the evening about Nimitta so (laughs) it's a nice little story here Um, so when I first experienced Nimitta's Nimitta in a sense refers to perhaps little lights or something in your mind in its imaginary lights or colours or visions I was at a Goenka retreat and the Goenka retreat person said oh this Nimitta that's your imagination that's that's a problem. Problem because you've been an artist. So basically, never say you don't really want that. And then the person went to to see this Burmese monk, Paul Ork, who teaches concentration. He says you've got to have a nimitta. <laughs> you don't have a nimitta, you can't get into jhana. So the person then became a monk, to with his strong intention to experience the lights of nimitta. So they got good at concentrating with pork system, counting breaths, but instead of getting a light, got a sound, persistent sound, which continues this very day. And I guess it's a sound of silence, that kind of slight sibilant sound you can hear. So where's all this coming from? Is, is this the unworldly? Other words call it ultimate reality, where time doesn't exist. Where's all this? So he's just questioning this Nimitta thing. And, uh, uh, well, the mind is an amazing uh, dimension. And the whole dimension of what we call the image, imaging dimension, the, imagi- the imaging realm, where it generates images, which it does. And it's, uh, it's happening all the time. <clears throat> you, know, you say somebody's name, you get an image pop up. Um, you think of Christmas, you get an image. Yeah. Yeah. Boom, just pops up. You go to sleep, all these images start running through your mind, calling dreams, because the mind is not engaged with other functions. It just starts to kind of dwell in the imaging level, images of Buddhas. And we generate these things for meditation, contemplative purposes. We can have a kind of an idea of a Buddha. And, or a bodhisattva or something, you generate that as an idea, and you can even visualize it. So it helps the mind to have something to get stabilized by that has a heartful meaning to it, so it, it lifts the heart, and it's conducive to samadhi. But the Buddha didn't teach any of this. <laughs> so these have all been added on by subsequent generations, with the aim of supporting um, using this imaging level of the mind. Um, the Buddha did say on uh, some of his practices he's got particular lights occurring. Uh, so he noticed if his mind was unsteady, the lights didn't occur. So it just helped him to see the mind can produce certain signs that are its way of expressing 
serenity or clarity. They're just like, it's the imaging level just presents particular signs. Um, but it's just what the mind does. And for some people it doesn't do that at all. Um, so the word nimitta itself is a, is a, has been made into this rather refined, specialised um, concept of little lights and in the Visuddhi Magga meditation manual is a whole section on developing these very subtle lights that you can focus on in, in your mind to, to get into jhana but it's contradictory to what the Buddha taught when he does he says going to your body and the nimitta of samadhi the nimitta of samadhi is called the four foundations the four establishments of mindfulness hmm. So in, in the early context, nimitta just means the defining characteristic. So samadhi, or the or the base base foundation, that which makes it possible, that which so samadhi is based upon the establishment of sati. So you use it like that. But he said also you can you can recognise when your mind is getting properly. Uh, rested or sensitized or entering into an object, you notice it changes. Then you, you pick up the sign. The mind is actually really getting in there. It's happy. It's flowing into that. You notice it changes character. It's no longer struggling. It's, you know, not, it's actually flowing in. It's, it's, that's a limiter. Look, notice what your mind is interested in. Notice its nimitta, notice its sign. What's it doing? And so this can be experienced as the qualities of joy, happiness, ease, the shift of energies, one feels released. Notice that as a sign. So this word nimitta is used much more broadly as any defining mark that you can uh, you can navigate by. That particular quality, uh, that yeah, that means I'm on the right track. But be careful of just uh, get playing, getting too playful with, with mental images because it can be very distracting and uh, you, you just get fascinated by mental images. So if they arise, they arise, if they don't arise, most important thing is sati. You know when you're being mindful or not. That's the most important thing. Okay, so... Thank you for those. I think we've used up enough time this evening.